Can we put some reverb on that? Is that a question for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're our editor. Who the fuck else would I be asking that question to? <clears throat> well, I have natural reverb. I don't. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking you if I can get some reverb on my <laughs> fucking air horn. If I put reverb on that, will you even listen to the episode to find out if I've done it? I guess there's only one way to find out, isn't there? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. Fuck yeah, dude. Morning. Welcome to Don't Be the Artist. I am Hagen, and I feel like I've been shot twice in the face by my dad. I am <laughs> I'm Dave. I'm Adam. <laughs> I'm Jackson, and I don't know if I can edit that out. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see We're you next on, week. It's, on, it's on brand. It's on theme. <laughs> okay, it may be on theme, but not on brand for the podcast. Okay, we have Dave's death corner. What the yeah, fuck are you talking about? Dave. We have not... we have an, an event where Dave talks it's, about death, and he doesn't like title. to do it. He doesn't like to do it. Or it's... the rename is Dave's death dangle, which is a lot worse. No, it's Dave's dangle. Den. Dave's dangle. Den. Dave's, Dave's dangle. Then sorry, God. Wow. Ooh, we're really killing it today. So great uh, I feel good. Great I feel great. I feel awesome. I'm just gonna who go feels into alive? who we're talking about. Who, who feels slash... alive today? Well, I, I, you know, according to your uh, opening, not Marvin Gaye. Correct. So. We'll be uh, talking about today, uh, not all of Marvin Gaye's career, but uh, just his uh, 11th studio album, What's Going On. But to you know, back up a little bit, uh, who is Marvin Gaye? He's the American uh, singer, songwriter, apparently he was also a record producer. He really was uh, in the formative years of Motown records with Barry Goydian and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, does... Dave, I feel like you're somebody who would know stuff about Motown, but all I know about Motown are just the jokes you hear from comedians about Mo- Motown and how it uh, kind of abused its artists. Do you know anything about it? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, There was a group of like, you know, it was a tight-knit group of musicians that would record on all these records. But back then, you know, with segregation and all that stuff, the racial tensions going on, it would they weren't being treated fairly. So... They got paid per session and not, they didn't get points on any of the recordings or anything like that. So their contracts were horribly negotiated. And a lot of the artists that recorded some of the best Motown songs ended up penniless or died of, you know, drug abuse or things like they didn't have a lot of money. And it's just horrible. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Marvin Gaye was part of that community, one of the, you know, more well-known. I mean, there's a ton of people on Motown. We could do a whole episode on all the artists on Motown, but today's episode is Marvin Gaye. I did not realize this, but um, I've always known that his last name has an E at the end. Uh, That was not, it was originally, it did not have an E. Like he was born, his legal name did not have an E. I don't know why he put the E at the end. I mean, to make it harder, less search engine, efficient i don't know yeah because that's something that people were thinking about in the 60s and 70s was search engine efficiency (laughs) i think so so he was born in 1939 which is a horrible year to be born that's you know as soon as the first or second world war starts 
bad times. History. (laughs) 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 All right. So Marvin Gaye, we all know him. He has tons of uh, songs. I heard it through the grapevine is, you know, probably his biggest song. Uh, Wasn't he on Ain't No Mountain High Enough? Uh Uh-huh. And Let's Get It On. Sexual Healing. A bunch of songs that everybody probably recognizes. Yeah. Yeah. So what we'll be talking about today is his 11th studio album, What's going on, which, you know, when the album came out, it was an immediate commercial success, but has lived on to garner, you know, more acclaim over the years. It came out in 1971, so, you know, we're pushing 50-plus years on this album. Um, And just this year, Rolling Stone uh, ranked it number one album on their 2020 edition of the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, and... I had never personally listened to the album prior to seeing that. And, you know, to be honest, I really didn't know much about Marvin Gaye other than those songs. We, I hadn't heard Sexual Healing until this week. Um, but I really just kind of, you know, w- went in and listened to a lot of his hits this week and then focused straight on this. So um, it, it definitely, whenever I saw that, oh, Rolling Stone, you know, and, you know, you can put whatever weight you want on that, but I just took it as a, oh, I'm going to at least give this album a listen to because I know I don't really know Marvin Gaye that well, and I definitely don't know that album, so why did they give it number one? And having gone into it, I now know exactly why they did it. It makes complete sense in 2020. And prior to that, I think in the 2003 edition, it was still number six, so it was pretty high up no matter what. This this uh, this album was also Motown's biggest commercial success. So, I mean, that's uh, going back to the Motown thing and just talking about the the impact. I mean, b- before that, it was I heard it through the grapevine, and then it was what's going on. So, yeah, and <clears throat> Motown originally didn't want to release it because they thought it was too uh, too controversial or too dark. Yeah, and by the way, the album cover is it's wonderful. Just you know. Marvin Gaye kind of looking upward uh, in like a raincoat with uh, just a, a wonderful set of facial hair. And then I was reading up on the album. Apparently that facial hair was controversial because he used to be all clean cut. And I was just like, damn, why did people give a shit about that? I guess the seventies were a time where like people just were not allowed to be themselves yeah, at all. Any reason to hate hippies. You know. People also yeah. still care about that kind of stuff now. I mean, we talked about before. I mean, people are like reacting to to like you know Adele's body change. Right. People have people still have harsh reactions to those kinds of things, and it's fucking stupid. Get the hell over. Get over it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And like you said, Jackson, he was he was super clean shaven, but he also wore suits and was like a you know Motown singer in the in the truest sense, where they were singing like songs about girls and love and all that kind of stuff. And then he, uh, right before this record, he, a close collaborator of his passed away from a brain tumor. And then he uh, got divorced and just a whole bunch of stuff started happening to him that wasn't very good. And he decided not to play music for a couple of years and he got really depressed and he tried to commit suicide. Um, I forget who it was that saved him, but somebody... Barry, Barry Gordy's father. Yeah, Barry Gordy's father saved him from from it happening, and then he comes, you know, he comes back, not wearing the suits anymore. He's wearing like just sweaters and beanies and 
he's got this real nice beard. <laughs> yeah. So pulling it back to kind of what led up before we get actually into the album, um, what was happening in the U.S. slash the world that led to the release of this album in 1971. So we're talking about a lot of social clashing with um, civil rights movements, which were in full swing at the moment. Uh, you know, and they're still going on to this day, but arguably this was a huge point. Um, you know, it, the later to mid 60s leading up to that. And then also an, another huge thing in the U.S. and the world uh, was the Vietnam War. And so those were the two things that really kind of pushed him to go from, as Dave was saying, talking about love and talking about all these things that you would associate with uh, radio hit singles of the time to being more socially conscious. And that's kind of how he moved into that. His brother, Frankie was a soldier in the Vietnam war and they would like write each other letters back and forth. And uh, that the um, talking about his brother's experience and it really, that also really affected him because he was like, you know, we're fighting this war and back home in our country, there are all these riots and shootings and nothing's going right here either. There's poverty and environmental issues that are going on. He just felt the need to say something about it. He, there's one, there's one quote where he says, uh, you know, I, I'm not a, I don't want to be in the war. I'm not a fighter or anything like that, but I can write songs. Yeah. And so I, I read that uh, the title track, What's Going On, was uh, it was written by, let's see what his name is, the Four Tops member, Ronaldo Obi Benson. And whenever he had written it, after witnessing uh, police brutality while on uh, tour, uh, seeing anti-war protesters getting uh, just brutalized by police and... Uh, that kind of he wrote that and then ended up having a situation where he was uh hanging out with marvin gay and said like hey like this song i think it's perfect for you and he convinced marvin gay that like hey i i want you to take this song what's going on and he ended up marvin gay said yeah i'll do it if you give me a co-writer credit and he ended up rewriting it making it more of a um i think what he was saying is he he made it more conversational that kind of stuff um and just completely made it into a, you know, kind of what it is now. And I'd love to hear that original, even though I doubt we'll ever be able to have that. But that's kind of what, as soon as uh, Marvin Gaye was introduced to this, like, oh, here's a way that I can talk about what I'm seeing and the injustice that I'm feeling and pent up, you know, angst uh, likely is what kind of, as soon as he saw that, he was the doors, the floodgates were open. So uh, one last thing I had before we get into the album is I read that this is a concept record. Did anybody else see that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the concept record is the viewpoint of a Vietnam veteran who returns from home or returns home to his country and witnesses all the pain, suffering, injustices that remain, as Dave already said, but... I found that super interesting as soon as I saw it was a concept record because uh, my first listen to, uh, I did not pick up on that. I just kind of picked up on all the social uh, commentary and 
we can kind of just go ahead and get into the album, I think. You know, album came out May 21st, 1971. It is a brisk 35 minutes and 38 seconds. And um, I don't know of that time. Was that normal of records to be that short? Yeah, I think it kind of depended. I mean, it, it was still, it was released on vinyl. So it was a side A, side B kind of thing. I don't know how long can vinyl be. Like how long? It's could like vinyl forty-four be back minutes. Then? Yeah, it's about forty minutes. So yeah, so if you could keep it under that, then I think that was the only requirement. Yeah, I think but that's it was... generally why albums of this era are usually shorter like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it does depend. I think you can see both cases where you'll see long and short. It was just a single disc, uh, but it was the first uh, album for Motown that had a gatefold which is very interesting. Uh, so had all that uh, inside stuff on the album, had uh, uh, a family photo montage in the inner sleeve, um, had space for the lyrics. Yeah, very cool. It had the exact same layout as Sgt. Pepper. Speaking of first, this was also the first album of his that he's credited as producer, which mm. seems crazy to me after 10 albums. And for the yeah, well, the, so, yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the Motown thing. Yeah. He like, had a lot of success and then... He renegotiated with Motown. Was like, I want my own studio, and I want you know to have more control over what what I'm doing. Yeah, he he also got credits for the in-house band for the first time on this album. Yeah, which was the Funk Brothers, like uh, James Jamerson, Bob Babbitt played bass. I can't remember the drummers' names or anybody else's names, but uh, the, I know the two bass players' names. Well, I was going to ask you, Dave, are those uh, popular musicians? Because as I said, I'm not really familiar with the Motown era or their artists um, when it comes down to, you know, the actual people who are on the records. So are these well-known artists playing on yeah. this? When, back in that time, especially, there was, you, there was real work for studio musicians. So you had the, the Wrecking Crew which they all worked with like Phil Spector and did all the Beach Boys and like all that whole thing and some Motown stuff, sounding stuff as well. And then you have the Funk Brothers where they're doing all the funky stuff and uh, like the other Motown stuff. But they were, they're so well known amongst like studio musician types or, you know, uh, career musicians. If you don't know, if you're a bass player and you don't know who James Jamerson is, then your favorite bass player is uh, knows who James Jamerson was, right? It's that kind of thing. They have such a huge influence on the instruments themselves that it's it's unmistakable. And so if you go down the list of all the songs that these guys have played on, it'll blow your mind. Yeah. So the the album came out, as we said, it's his 11th studio album, and it was technically released on a um, Motown subsidiary, Tamla, Tamla. So, you know, whether or not that was Motown's uh, lack of faith in the record because it was a, a direction change for gay, I'm not quite sure, but I wouldn't be shocked. Um, typically, that's kind of what subsidiaries are for with any type of produ- production company, whether it's movies, comics, or probably art as well. Um, or So, a lot of... We... D- this is a short album. We're just going to go ahead and go through each song and kind of just talk about it. And, you know, the first thing I notice on this album, which I love this, this is an automatic win for me almost all the time, is that a lot of the songs segue into each other. 
it, it was called a you know it's known as a song cycle which is you know basically just a, a, a collection of songs that are meant to be listened to to together from start to finish not necessarily like a, oh you can pick up this song it they're they're stronger together which i would argue most albums are that but this one more so it, because it does it is does feel like it is 35 minutes of yeah. music that goes from start to finish yeah and the, the whole thing is filled with like lots of wonderful string arrangements Marvin Gaye was very, at this time, very fond of doing multiple vocal takes and harmonizing with himself and having choirs in there. Um, As I've said before, the bass playing on this record is unbelievable. But a fun fact about uh, the first half of the record and the second half, it's it's James Jamerson and then Bob Babbitt, the other guy. The first half, when Jamerson was called in to do the session, he was so drunk that he couldn't sit on a chair and he recorded all of his tracks laying on the floor. <laughs> now, when you think about that, I can't, if you YouTube, uh, if you go on YouTube and search like what's going on bass cover, there's probably thousands and there are papers about James Jamerson's playing on this record and he was wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, shit like that. That's it great. It just makes you feel terrible about yourself. Well, I mean, they were spending, you know, probably 12 hours a day in a studio and then going and playing seven-hour gigs. Right. And they were doing that for decades. So it's like that's how conditioned they were. Yeah, and you mentioned his uh, doubling up on vocals. But at, did you? It, it was super interesting when I was reading about the actual production and recording of this album is that whenever uh, Marvin Gaye sent it off to be mixed, what he did... Uh, and this was so the album started as just the one song that was presented to him what's going on the title track and then once people heard that then they had the confidence saying hey if this was a runaway success releasing this political song if you can uh motown said if you can get me a album within a month i will let you do whatever you want if it goes over a month that's when i'm going to come in and say hey you need to write a love song. You need to do this. So that was kind of his guideline. And he ended up doing it after, you know, I think the, the first I think single. it was in like 10 days or something. They, Yeah. It was something so, really I, quick. I was wondering, and that's writing and recording. What I was wondering about that, though, is that was 10 days of recording. Um, did, was the stipulation on this month-long uh release like i need like a finished product in my hand by uh 30 days or was it just like a, i need you to be done recording and then we can mix it after those three but that's the minutia that doesn't really matter well yeah but at the, at that time motown was very much uh, a machine much like nashville yeah. is now where the songwriter would you know give the song to the producer the producer would play it for the band the band would record it, they would give it back to the producer, give it over to the mixer, and then it was done. Mixing yeah. wasn't as involved, and, and even like the amount of microphones that they were using to record, they might have had like two microphones on the drums. Uh, you know, guitars, there were two guitar players on this record and two bass players. They probably went direct into the mixing console and didn't do much EQ on it at all. So the entire process wasn't as involved as it is now. Yeah, that's true. And but I wonder what those like string arrangements like. I mean, 
I just can't imagine doing that so quickly, but as I'm not a composer, so maybe that is kind of the wheelhouse that you're in is being able to turn something around immediately like that. Well, and the, and, and the, the orchestra's probably, if I had to guess, I would guess that they recorded in the same room as the, as the other musicians. Yeah. There was a, there's a really good, there's a really good video that uh, Questlove did where he broke down the, the tracks uh, like track by track and kind of like took things in and out from what's going on. And um, it was really cool to hear him, like he, him hearing it like this for the first time, uh, the original mix and going like, you know, him talking about how the, the, the congas were a really big part for him. There's always like a really big beat to hit with the congas in the song and there's a ton of reverb on it. So it feels so big. But then he was like, what happens if you take it out and you just have the drums and it's a totally different song. It's a 100%. And so what he did is, so first of all, there's there's the electric guitar, but then there's an acoustic guitar also on the song. So he took out the guitars, and he just had the keyboard that was played by Marvin Gaye and the drums, and that was all he had. And it was like, this is a 100%. I, I, it doesn't sound like this song. It doesn't sound like what's going on at all. It's wild. So it was yeah. so layered, but you would never really guess how layered it was, and especially in the time that it would take for them to record this stuff. Yeah, and that that intro, the saxophone line, was a mistake. And yeah, there, man. there was there was some uh, there was some quote from Marvin Gaye where the saxophone player was like, "Yeah, I was just improvising and and you know messing around." Wait, you're gonna mess this up. I I, I literally have this screenshot. <laughs> it, it is so funny. No, you have to say this right. So what it was is Eli Fontaine did the opening alto saxophone riff. And it wasn't originally intended to be the opening riff. And when Marvin Gaye heard it uh, in the playback, uh, Fontaine thought it was just simply a demo. And Marvin Gaye instantly fell in love with it and decided that's the way we're going to start the song. And Fontaine said he was just goofing around. And Gaye, being pleased with the results, replied, well, you goof off exquisitely. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I would have totally messed that up. <laughs> like you just, it's the goof off thing. I, I've read that so many times over and over. I just, I can't wait for some time in my life that I get to tell somebody, sir, you goof off exquisitely. <laughs> but yeah, that, ho- that opening track, I mean, that title track is just like incredible. What I was saying about that, um, I don't think I got to my point on the vocals. So, Marvin Gaye was uh, the whole album is like this kind of like double tracked uh, lead vocals. And that was an accident because when they sent this first, when what what's going on was originally just a single, he sent his two lead takes that he had uh, performed to be mixed. And the mixer mistakenly thought, Oh, you want these together. So he mixed them together. And then Marvin Gaye was like, oh, that's not what I meant. And the guy was like, oh shit, my bad. And he goes, no, but that sounds incredible. We're going to do the whole album like this now. And I was just like, damn, those mistakes with what you were talking about, Dave, like these bases going straight into the board. And like what we talked about on the David Bowie uh, deep dive is like, you know, you put this crazy effect on it back then you got to really own it because if you aren't cool with that, you're fucked. That's how it's going to sound. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know, it could be a number one hit and then you live the rest of your life being the person that made a mistake on the, one of the biggest songs of all time. Like there's a, 
there's a bass part in sitting on the dock of the bay that is wrong and we, we wouldn't notice it but like the guy that played that part was like man i can't get away from it <laughs> damn yeah. so uh, how do you guys feel about that in the opening track uh how do you guys feel about when there's like talking in the background of songs? Cause personally, like nine times out of 10, I do not like that stuff, but I think it really works on this song. Yeah. I think it depends on the, the song and the album, but it really works here and it's a good intro to the whole album. Yeah. And talking, talking sometimes is like, can be a little annoying, but it, it reminds me of Benny and the jets where it was made to sound alive, but it doesn't. So it really adds to the atmosphere of the recording itself. Yeah, I think that the a big thing for me on this on this song and album in general is there's a lot of like hard pans, and so I had I had the issue with some. I think the only time I really have issue with talking is when it's like super hard panned because it just completely distracts me and throws me off. But it does fit really well here. It does fit really well. Yeah, and I think what so the chorus, if you've never heard the song, is you know talking about. Uh, picket signs and picket lines so they're obviously talking about these uh protests and stuff like that and just being able to actually talk to people about what is bothering you and what's going on in the world um and i i think that's where it adds for me and benny and the jets you're saying like they're going for a live feeling but like in this you know it, it really does feel like you're either having a convert you're, you're not having a conversation but you're listening to the conversation that's happening in the lyrics and then also maybe this is being sung as part of the protest at the picket line that kind of thing and i i think that's where uh, the out al- this album's strength uh is within its ability to have these the socially conscious themes but have it uh more conversational as opposed to really just saying like hey here is what's wrong here and put it right in your face it, it really emphasizes like the the human element rather than you know the dire situations which is really easy to focus on it's really hard to look back on the um human element but this opening track is like i don't know if it's the best song on the album but i i would probably say it is but because it, it's so fucking good like this opening track is so good i think it's i, I can't get it out of my head I thought of it in a way that it kind of serves as a precursor for like the the subject matters of of each song. It's very, if you you can kind of boil it down to different chapters in under this umbrella of Marvin Gaye talking about literally what's going on at the time. So I thought that was, you know, the more as well, I hadn't like you, Jackson, I hadn't really heard the full album at all. Maybe whatever singles there were, but um, I didn't understand why this song was important. Like we were talking about last week, I didn't hear this as a protest song. Even, you know, the lyrics are very on the nose that there's some sh- some shit that's not right. But now hearing the whole album and then trying, you know, doing the research, I look at this song and I hear it completely differently. You know, it, it answers this question that I posed last week when we were talking about protests or political music that, uh, you know, can you listen to a Vietnam War era song as... Uh, none of us were alive at that time and it'd be relevant and make sense and sadly it is still relevant today what he's talking about so uh, you know I would love to be able to listen to this and say this is a Vietnam War song and it's not relevant to what we're going through today but unfortunately it is so it you know the first listen through of this album I just kind of I didn't pay too much 
attention to the lyrics because it's such a short album. I think I listened to this maybe five or six times and I just wanted to kind of let it wash over to me and just get that genuine reaction of like, oh, do, am I, is this catchy? Is this something I would just listen to without knowing what it, is it like an in sync type thing? And it was, it was, there was a lot of moments that like, you know, earworms, especially on that, that first song. Um, but then as you get more into it and start actually uh, diving into the lyrics, that there's a lot to be taken away from it. Um, so moving into the next song it goes from what's going on straight into what's happening brother which this there are moments i think there's about three times on the album where they don't segue into each other they kind of it's like a stop and then the next song starts this one is like they segue really nicely into each other and i i think honestly the first song is only four minutes and then the second song is about three minutes so you could play them back to back and call them one song. In my opinion, I think they both stand really strong together. I I think that I found that across most of this album was, I mean, I mean, like you said, they, they, it was the intention for them to do that, but I found that to be at a certain point, uh, a little bit of like probably the only negative for me is I was just like, man, this is going too, too well together. And I don't really feel too much of like an ebb and flow. It just kind of felt like we're on this one line and it was a really great line to be on. But at a certain point I was like, I'd really like to feel a little bit more up or a little bit more down. Um, But from the, for the start of the album, the first two, I was like, yeah, this is a great feeling. It's an excellent feeling. Yeah. I think that you can look at it. uh, If you, if you listen to it from a standpoint of, uh, thinking about the what's going on as the prologue and then the rest of the album talking about each subject and then the very end, the way that it ends, and pay attention to the lyrics. Like if you're reading the lyrics along with it, there are ups and downs. But totally. other than that, yeah, it's uh, it's easy to get lost in the seemingly same kind of feeling throughout the whole thing. Yeah, so I debated, because uh, I've talked about this before, that even like on these albums like this that are supposed to be from like front to back and really they lead in each track leads into the, the next. Uh, I like to shuffle those albums to see, Oh, well do these songs stand on their own? Or is this really just like one musical piece? And I almost did that for this album, but then I just kind of decided it, it's so short. It's just like, it, it was so beside the point for me. Whereas that David Bowie album, when I did it, it made the album better to me. And I was like, only thing that's going to happen here is take away from me. But I, I completely agree with you, Hagen, that like, yeah, I, I could see how it musically, there's not a lot of movement that makes you yeah. feel like, a, oh, this is the, the ballad part. And really, I would say that there's only three songs on this album that I would pick out. There, there are nine songs total. And I would say out of those, there are three that I would pick out as like a, oh, I want to just listen to this song. And that'd be what's going on. Um, right on and inner city blues. Those would be the only songs that I could pick out and say like, I will listen to those songs right now. Otherwise it would just be like, I have to listen to them go into each other or else I feel like I'm not getting the whole effect. I would say that if you did shuffle it, as long as you started with what's going on, it'd probably be fine. I think that yeah. because, because, of, because the album does for the most part sit on this level, it did this kind of straight line level it, it would be okay to, to to move it around a little bit but starting with what's going on dave like you said it's like a prologue to the whole thing lyrically i mean it, i think it would work to just kind of move it around a little bit and see what happens um 
I mean, I'm sure there was some, I'm sure there's intention behind the order, uh, but I do think that it would work because it does, it, it, there isn't a lot of like seemingly intentional musical ups and downs. Lyrically, I think that you can put them around and probably will be fine. Yeah, and it, it's not like a story. Right, it's, exactly. It's just talking, it's a comment commentary on the state of what's going on in the world at that point, particularly America. Uh, you can, I think though, if you, with albums like this, there's a lot to listen to. Right. And it's one of those albums that clearly has stood the test of time because the more you listen to it, the more it sucks you in and you start paying attention to different parts of of the recording itself. Like for anyone who's listening, if you have an album that you don't enjoy the first time through, aside from the single, I would highly encourage you to give it multiple chances to get closer to that recording. And then each little movement or song, depending on the context of the record, you get real close to it and you can start to form a real strong relationship with each section. It, it makes me think, Hagen, about like some of the later Between the Buried Me records where the first time you listen through, there's so much to take in. And if you don't know it very intimately, you can go, oh, there's one part of this record I really enjoy, but I just don't know where it is. Yeah, and I think that that, that, that just goes for a lot of, like, I mean, this this style of music, and especially music back then that we were talking about, is so heavily layered. When you have so many, you know, heavy, heavily layered parts, when you have albums or songs that just have so much going into them, uh, not not just from the perspective of lyrics, um, but just musically, there is a lot of being put into these songs, and it it on some level, if it wasn't for the fact that it's mixed so well, and also it constantly like if you're listening in headphones, especially it like keeps your ear going because of the panning. It kind of if it wasn't mixed so well, it'd feel like you're just throwing random shit at the wall and hoping that it sticks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you have the best players. You have you have the best you know throwers to that throw shit at the wall, so it works out just fine. But if if you're listening to a bunch of shit thrown at the wall, you're like, God, I just it's just a lot. So you have to go back and you have to do it again. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think that if you do find something you like in this, go back and listen to it. You know, I think that's a really really good point to be made about this stuff, about these really really uh, layered and I don't want to say busy because this isn't necessarily busy. No, it's a, it's the like the Phil Spector wall of sound yeah, kind exactly. of idea where it's like there's just such a it's it's so um expansive in a way. Like if you if you are under the right circumstances, under the right influence, this could be a really great album to listen to and just get sucked into it because it's it's just in like all encompassing. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a really great listen. But this song in particular what's happening, brother, uh was it's dedicated to his brother Frankie, right? Because he was a war vet. But it's the whole subject. The lyrics are, you know, this veteran getting home and going, "Hey, so what's going on in the world? What's cool and what's not? And like, why is this still happening?" And you know, it it really makes me think about even now in 2020, some people coming home from a war that's still happening, and maybe not knowing what's going on in the world. That's really crazy to think about. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and you come back from a war, you come back from anything, and, and you're like, what the what the fuck? There were people who were, you know, uh, doing things where they were away from society recently, and they came back, and they were like, what's COVID-19? Why, yeah. Like, why, why are people in their houses all the time? Um, yeah. 
and then you know it's 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 a very sorry that was loud i'm sorry everybody <laughs> god that's so embarrassing what was that noise <laughs> <laughs> but yeah coming back to a country like it's like you go to fight for your country and then you come back and that country is fucked yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> it's that famous uh take that um muhammad ali took whenever i believe and i may be paraphrasing or have some of the details wrong here but i believe he was either asked whether he was going to go to uh the vietnam war or maybe he was drafted and he specifically said i'm not going to go fight for our country when my people referring to african-american people don't even have the same freedoms why would i fight for a freedom that my people don't even have and yeah i'm pretty pretty sure he was drafted and he ended up going to court for being a draft dodger and stuff like that yeah and then he got elected president whoops wrong guy um (laughs) so moving into the third song just like so just like so wrong guy just like so wrong (laughs) guy. (laughs) they're both draft dodgers though <laughs> the yeah, one, one, the, one had the morals. One, one, the other had shin splints. The one thing they had in common. <laughs> yeah. So moving into the third song, "Flying High in the Friendly Sky," as strong as those first two songs were, I, I think this is probably for me the weakest song on the album. It's just kind of, it, it feels really kind of meandering in the lyrics. Uh, apparently, "Flying High" it's dealing with uh, heroin dependency, but. I, I personally don't have much to say on this. It's not a bad song, but when it's uh, the songs that it's kind of, you know, are bookended by, um, it's just, it doesn't, it's not up to snuff in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard for it to stand out. Yeah, but I, I, I listened to this record the full way through and I didn't enjoy that one much. And then I read about what the content of each song was about, knowing that this one was about heroin use and drug addiction in general. And then paying attention to how, like, you know, there are tons of cymbal swells. There's a lot of different key centers being moved around. I don't know. I haven't analyzed the music at all, but, like, all that different stuff. And then there's this bass line that's just constant through the whole thing, carrying it through. It kind of made me feel like uh, maybe I was hearing what it's like to be the, the musical equivalent of being stuck in a heroin addiction. And I yeah. was like, oh, okay, that's really cool. But again, I don't know if, if if they meant that. I've talked about that before where it's like, do we just call it this? Because that's kind of what it feels like. When we were talking about some of the instrumental stuff on the David Bowie record, where they were like, we want this to feel like the feeling in Berlin at the time. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> Maybe we're just making something better than it is. But I got that vibe listening to this after I knew about the context of the song. I don't think that's making something better than what it is. I think it's just, you know... I. It's really, um, you know, music is a conversation in a lot of ways. And um, I listen to a lot of podcasts where artists will talk about their music and will say, hey, people think it's about this one thing. I don't take it that way, but I'm glad that they do because who am I to say that's wrong? And, uh, you know, I don't think it's making it better. I'm, but like, and then also on that, the flip side of that coin is uh, I sent Adam to a there's a band called dark rooms that Adam and I are super into and, um, Daniel Hart from them. Uh, he plays violin and he's like, Oh, I was inspired, uh, to, uh, from all the COVID devastation to write this song. And it's just how I feel. And I was like, man, this is just like a, like, it's a beautiful song. I love it. Amazing. But I was like, 
this is just like an instrumental violin song. Like I've written instrumental songs that I put dumb names to, but I don't genuinely feel like, oh, I wrote this instrumental song because I was feeling depressed, something like that. It's just like, I just wrote what sounded good. Um, so I'm sorry to alienate anyone who writes songs like that. I mean, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's obviously like a very large history in writing in, instrumental music with, you know, having some kind of emotion behind it. Cause that's where like a lot of classical music comes from, but there's no problem with, you know, the way, the way that that goes uh, either direction. Cause there's like obviously instrumental bands who have just named tunes, funny stuff for the sake of naming it that way. Uh, so with the, with this song and with God is love, which we'll get to, they're both written by uh, Marvin Gaye's wife and his confidant LG LG. I don't know how to say his name Stover. Uh, and Stover was nicknamed quote the curse out man at Motown. Now, Dave, I think that you have potential to be like this person. Um, so <laughs> if if Motown needed to, uh, as this quote said, tear a strip off of someone. Uh, they'd send Stover over after the person had a couple drinks and Stover had a couple drinks and he'd curse the heck out of them. Uh, so <laughs> I think, I think Dave, you have real potential to be our generation's curse out man and give everybody a real good talking to when they need it after a couple <laughs> drinks. Uh, this guy also later in life became a caterer and a secret service man for Bill Clinton. Yeah. I probably also have that same fate. <laughs> <of me. laughs> you cuss too many people out and nobody will call you anymore. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. For the for the record, I've I've never cussed anybody out on a session. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but you but 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 the the whole point of the curse out man was that like the 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 label would send him in and go like, okay, like this guy needs to be talked to. So go talk to him now. Like like someone needs to like just tell him to smarten the fuck up, and you're the dude, one who can tell him to smarten the fuck up. Pay me to do that, and I will live the rest of my life a happy man. <laughs> Moving into our fourth song, Save the Children, which um, I think is a good song. It, it starts pulling back into what I like more about this album. But I, I, the lyrics and kind of the delivery of it do feel a bit silly in execution, but I really think that's just coming from a modern context. If I were able to listen to this when the album came out, or just in a vacuum, I don't think I would feel that well. But there's this, like, the, he's singing this falsetto saying, like, ooh, save the babies, save the children. And I'm just like, man, like, you're beautiful. You're singing great. But it does feel a little weird. As I said, I think that's just a modern lens on a song 50 years old. Because at that time, he was, he was, also, he was saying save the children, but it's because uh, who's going to save the world that is, he says, who's gonna, who will save the world, a world that is destined to die. So he's looking at it from a perspective of if all of us are killing each other and there's corruption and stuff like that, what if, like, that's where the cheesiness comes in. It's like, what about the children? I mean, that's just yeah. as relevant today as it was in 1971. <laughs> yeah, no, and like, there's definitely, I, I feel that very often of like, man, why the fuck do we even try? whenever things are just fucked no matter what to the point of contemplating like should i have children if i want to bring them up in this world like what kind of world are we leaving our children it's okay so from when i when i hear stuff like that i think like you know the song we are the world that is like uber cheesy and it always has been and it always will be what no (laughs) bob dylan loved that session Oh my god, dude! That super cut of just his reactions to things is really funny. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, for the people that aren't the four of us. <laughs> Jackson is just giving us intense Bob Dylan stares. And he's muted his mic and he's going, woo, woo. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Jackson knows how to mute his mic. No. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I thought it was really cool. But some of the things, you know, maybe this is a product of having to write and record in, in within a month. We've talked about that earlier. Some of the songs had a great message. But if I didn't read the lyrics, I wouldn't necessarily know what the message was. Because a lot of times the, the important parts of the subject matter of each song get stretched out amongst a lot of held out notes and the vocals and little improvisations that he's doing, you know, just as a performer that he's really good at doing. Um, so a song like with save the children, I maybe wouldn't have known <laughs> outside of the fact that he says save the children, but there's more to it than just his <laughs> plea to save the children <laughs> that I, that I got from reading the entire lyrics. Right. But you get the general message just listening to it, obviously from the title too, but yeah. Yeah, there's there's some parts of this where it kind of is lost and isn't as obvious. Yeah. I had that throughout the album. Yeah. But uh I think the next two songs which I could consider even just one song just because the next song God is Love is hardly even 2 minutes and it has one of the smoothest transitions on the album into Mercy Mercy Me. Uh, but God is love brings back the jam part of the album. And like it immediately for me, gives me that endorphin rush. And then that, that smooth transition, I, you know, you would be fooled to even know that it's a, a different song and that's, but like in a, in a good way, I, I, I they are definitely like lyrically different uh, subjects, but it does feel like, all right, I've said what I want about this God is love. And then now I'm on to Mercy, Mercy Me. And like these two songs jam so hard and they in the side A really, really well. You know what I love too is be- between some of these transitions to get like a little bit music nerdy a bit, uh, that they're like slightly, ever so slightly speeding up to get yeah. to the correct tempo of the next groove. And it just blows my it, it just blows me away. If I was listening, like maybe I, maybe I would say a majority of people that would listen to this album that aren't musicians would never notice that. But those tiny little details are just so intriguing to me. I just want to know how they got to that point in the studio. So, do you think they're like on these two songs, "God Is Love" into "Mercy Mercy Me"? You think they were recorded back to back? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but I would I would say so. Because this is this is where the other bass player takes over for the, for this and the and the rest of the record, they were all such incredible musicians that that they could have done this the whole way through, and they were recording to tape, so they don't want to spend too much time cutting up the tape and overdubbing things, so they probably did the like the two guitars, keys, vocals, and drums and bass first in one session, and then did all the strings and uh, vocal overdubs in another session. But I would guess that they did, when the transition is too good to be true, they probably played it all the way through. Yeah. Oh, oh, damn. That was a that nice was, rhyme. Damn, right that was sick. Dr. Seuss, what the fuck? 
Last and, thing I have to say about side one is that Mercy, Mercy Me, which is the final track on it, the sixth track on the album, is the only song on the album that has uh, Marvin Gaye as the sole songwriter. All the rest have other songwriters on it. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Wow, crazy. Um, So, like, I don't know if you guys want to play a game. I have a kind of shitty game if you guys want to play it. Let's I don't do know, it. though. You guys want to play a shitty game? Is, we can play a shitty what game. What kind of shitty? Well, it's not really about this no, album. No, Adam, you're in or you're out. No, I'm in. I'm just curious what kind of shit. Oh. It's not about this album. And it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'm uh, in. I'm still in. And it's 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 kind of about Marvin Gaye. But uh, it's, you know, it's, it's something that we've talked about before on this podcast that uh, I just felt like, you know... Let's let's bring it up and let's make it another a point of conversation because it is important to talk about. Uh, so the name of the game is "What's Going On with Thinking Out Loud." It's a lawsuit game, everybody. Um, <laughs> I hate this. I'm gonna go ahead and tap out. I never agree to the game. I asked everyone before I started if we want to play a shitty game. All right, I gave I gave you an out. Um, okay, so we've discussed multiple times that Marvin Gaye's estate. Uh, has been a part of multiple lawsuits. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but if if you don't know, uh, for those who don't know who, who haven't heard us talk about it before, uh, Marvin Gaye's estate just likes to sue people. They've sued, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Fuck. Robin, Robin Thicke. Thick, Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams for Blurred Lines. And the they, they sued Ed Sheeran. Uh, I guess the lawsuit started back in 2018 for his song, Thinking Out Loud. Um, it was for the, it was for Marvin Gaye's song, let's get it on. So it's not actually about anything on this album. Um, I tried to find, cause I was just like crossing my fingers that the estate had gone crazy and sued about something on this album, but I couldn't find anything. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, we'll just go into just, I only have a couple questions cause it's pretty, uh, straightforward. Um, so, uh, this, this first question focuses on the elements of the case. Um, what, what were the original points that the estate were claiming were copywritten? Was it A, chord progression, B, lyrical content, C, feel and style, D, vocal melody? C. I think it's the chord progression. Uh, I'm gonna go feel and style. So the original uh, argument that like when the suit was put in, it did say feel and style. That was the original point they made. It wasn't about anything valid, it was about feel and style. That is not a, but so the whole thing is that the, the, the Robin Thicke lawsuit was also this way. Um, they claimed feel and style for both lawsuits. Eventually, uh, they made the claim that it has the same melody, same rhythms, same harmonies, same drums, same bass line, same backing chorus, same tempo, same syncopation, um, and same, same looping. Same Marvin Gaye. Same Marvin Gaye. <laughs> um, the, the, the really big like point I didn't know about, which is really interesting is that Ed Sheeran actually used to transition into let's get it on after he played thinking out loud live. So, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's like courting the devil. You yeah. fucking poke the bear. <laughs> so, so I like the, the, the thing with this is that I really like, I think the songs are, are, are similar. I don't think they're lawsuit worthy. Um, like the vocal melody is different. Uh, parts of the percussion is different. The chord progression, if you want to get nerdy, which the whole point of lawsuits is to get nerdy, the chord progressions are, are slightly different. Um, but he really was poking the bear with that. The judge cited this footage of the performance as something which the jury might be quote unquote impressed with. Oh. 
that's such a huge issue with these lawsuits is that like the jury they are not experts music music well, experts so like it's just like god damn it juries juries aren't supposed to be experts in what they're being and what they're jurying right they're supposed to be a, a, a group of impartial people who are uh, uh impartial unbiased people to to like so both sides can present the case the problem is, is that uh, in the case of in, in these music lawsuits, you have these lawyers who are like making up shit, basically. Uh, so they were basically like writing out like fake music theory stuff uh, and using like quote unquote music theory experts who have written books, uh, but using them to say like, yeah, basically are the same song because of here's a bunch of words I'm going to say that don't actually make sense. But the jury does, like you said, the jury doesn't know they're not music theory experts. So they use that to their advantage. Yeah. Anyways, uh, all y'all drink for making us have to bitch about the Marvin Gaye estate again. Not Marvin okay. Gaye himself. Yeah, his that, estate. I read. I also read a number of articles about how people are so upset uh, at Marvin Gaye's estate. There are people who have even gone as far far to say that Marvin Gaye's estate have ruined Marvin Gaye's songs for them because they just continue to push and push and sue and like take away from just how good the music was on its own. They have to sue everybody for it. The problem is, and you know, Ed Sheeran's been sued three times, twice for um, thinking out loud. And then once for another song. And to me, it just kind of screams like, I think that this is just how music's going to go for the rest of time. Like we're just going to be writing songs that sound kind of similar because it sounds fucking good. So I don't know. Stop trying to make a bunch of money off of it, but whatever. I'll drink about it. Music is a conversation. So, moving into side two, we have three more songs left. It starts off with the longest song on the album, seven and a half minutes long, and it's called Right On. Um, I feel like I should have more. Yeah, I feel like I should have more to say about this song. I like it. And that's really about all I have to say about this song. It, it was a good song. Uh, Dave, do you have something about it? Um, I, it was maybe because it was the longest song, I, didn't, I enjoyed it the least. <laughs> <laughs> but I still thought it was really good. And he's talking about like uh, just choosing love and... He preaches a lot about God in this record. And knowing about his career, he had a lot of contradictions in his lyrics, lyrical content throughout his career. He had a very troublesome relationship with his dad. He always wanted to be, like, he wanted to get involved in sports, but then he uh, just didn't end up, wasn't able to do it. And he wanted to, you know, do drugs and, and get really messed there. At one point, Later in his career, some people said that he had in one room a drug dealer and in another room a preacher. So these contradictions in his career are like kind of funny to think about when you hear about him singing, um, let's all praise God and if you let me, I will, uh, I will take you to where love is king, king in reference to God. Yet his next biggest single after this record is Let's Get It On. And he's fully embracing like... <laughs> premarital sex and being promiscuous <laughs> i mean uh, yeah i think I, I think that there would be a lot of contradictions in someone's life like this 
I mean, to consider living, to consider growing up in, I mean, even, even now, um, but a lot of people are raised in the, in a very rigid household and sometimes religious household. And then to go into this industry, especially it, in the sixties and seventies, when people were still kind of, I don't know, figuring out how this industry was going to work. And you're also probably getting fucked over a bunch. You're probably going to drink about it. You're probably going to do drugs about it. Uh, and you're also probably going to pray about it if that was how you're raised. Um, and it makes sense to you. So I don't know. It, it, it makes sense to have those contradictions, but it's interesting to hear them in the lyrical content. But his dad also uh, didn't work for like decades. Like <laughs> there was a, there was a, 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 it was in, um, it was in God is love. There's a lyric where he uh, basically like, says two ironic phrases one that's like love your mom because she bore you and the other one is like love your dad because he works for you right uh, his mom supported the family and his dad liked to drink and not work so yeah it's crazy and and he uh he brought home at one point like the, for the first time his dad saw him play was after was during the tour for this record and his dad was not impressed and then Later on, after that, he brought home a suitcase with a briefcase with a million dollars in it. Put it down in the bed and was like, "Look at this. What do you think now?" And his dad was like, uh, "Making money while selling your soul is not commendable." <laughs> well, well, yeah, even brother. if you could, uh, we talked about how this is kind of a loose con. It has a loose concept to it. That album does. Uh, even if you were to able to, re- you could theoretically remove uh marvin gay from the context of the album and just have it like well this character is coming back from going to war which i've never been to war but i can only assume that is like one of the worst things a human being could encounter in their life and then coming back home and realizing hey nothing's better or it's not that great here either so what do I have? How do I feel better about it? And what this character is saying is, you know, uh, the camaraderie of God and religion is, you know, what can make people band together and love each other again. Yeah. So try try to attain world peace. Yeah. So you could remove Marvin Gaye from the situation and just say, okay, well, the, the character and, and it's like this is a, another situation of removing the art artist from the art, not in like a Kanye West situation where it's like, oh, Kanye is a shitty dude. But this is a situation where it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, he had a long enough career and had enough albums that like you're going to contradict yourself at some point just because of the way humans uh, are. You right. should grow within your life. And especially when you have such an a, accelerated uh life like someone who is so famous like this you are going to from your first album to the last you should see growth there and if that means you've contradicted yourself so be it as long as you're not actively hurting somebody that that's totally okay and if anything i would say it's healthy to see that that you see that growth and uh you know a celebrity and I should say that, like, you know, with songs like this, he, uh, he's, he's coming off of a, I think it was two or three years of depression and not being in the limelight after being there since he was like very early twenties, maybe late teens. And he's has an idea. 
he looks at the world after re-entering it. He went to Belgium and Paris or something like that. He has a world, an idea of a world, again, after re-entering it, coming from a family with religious beliefs, where he's saying, if we just use love and, you know, we can all be happy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, going from uh, r- right on into Holy Wait! Holy. I have other things about right on. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> nothing, nothing really important. I just wanted to say a couple more things about it. I didn't want to interrupt. That was a really good talk, guys. You did great. Um, uh, performance was mentioned. Uh, so he, he did play What's Going On from uh, like the whole album once. And it was a year after its release, roughly. Um, and he hadn't performed live in four years. And he was already a nervous performer, apparently. Um, and so he had an, uh, uh, just hired a band that was under-rehearsed. He panicked and started with Right On. So he played <laughs> Side B first and then played Side A. Um, but apparently it's a great performance. Uh, it's at the Kennedy Center, and it is on the internet for you to watch. Um, he, played, he played the title track twice, which is very interesting. And then also the flute solo on the song was played by a 13-year-old girl what yeah and she uh so she was brought in during like the the what's going on like sessions to be a part of the band and marvin Gaye apparently called her back to the studio later that night to perform a solo on it and he wanted a jazz solo and she's a 13 year old trained classically and he just said go for it and she nailed it yeah it sounds great and knowing motown i guarantee you she got no fucking compensation for that yeah i'm sure there was no money but still to be like a 13 year old girl and to be called in to be played uh, play a flute i'm sure she was like terrified i'm sure she was absolutely terrified uh she was apparently she was so unhappy with her playing she didn't listen to the track until years later dude she's immortalized she has like i mean like Four dudes on a podcast now have spoken about her. <laughs> <laughs> about the end, she's really inspiring me to take more gigs that pay in exposure bucks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ju- just just to make sure we're, we we do say her name is her name was Dana Hart Hartwick. Dana mm. Hartwick. I'll bleep that now. out for you. <laughs> her name was. <laughs> now you can go on. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say those things. They're interesting. So the second to last song, "Holy Holy," is another. Uh, as we were talking about uh, religion and God, this is called Holy Holy. So it, it just it's a continuation of that. Uh, I think this one is really good. Uh, it's another one of a, it's kind of slower, but it doesn't, you know, bore me like uh, Flying High did. I really, I like this song. I think all of Side 2 are solid tracks. Um, I don't, but once again, like right on, I don't have much to say about Holy Holy. Uh, I just have so much to say about the last song, which I'll wait if in case anybody wants to talk about Holy Holy. Nah. Nah, yeah, it's much. It's basically right on, like a continuation. The, the song, the song originally didn't have the the W in the first Holy. Originally, it was just two Holy Holies with H's. I, that's all I got. I, I really but enjoyed the, that when I read it. I was like, <laughs> "Oh, this is great. That's really clever." <laughs> So the last song on the record is Inner City Blues, Makes Me Wanna Holla. I, I want to take out Makes Me Wanna Holler. I don't like that. I, I think Inner City Blues was probably, you know, a, a good title. But uh, I think this is five and a half minutes, so it's a bit longer uh, than all the other songs. But 
man, I think this is such an amazing song. And as I said, this is one of those songs that you could just play this and I, I would jam to it regardless of uh, sequ- track sequence. But um, amazing closing track. Um, it's just such a good song. And it talk. I think this one is very obviously from the, the title of the track and to the lyrics of it very obviously has a political message of talking about what it's like to be in the inner city and what exactly those people who live in those conditions are dealing with in a country that has already has turmoil and in its best uh, scenarios then go into the inner cities where you know things can just be fraught for other reasons well and like the rest of the album the song specifically is very like eerily relevant today i mean there's a line in there about trigger happy policeman and that just could have been written yesterday trigger happy policing panic is spreading yeah they <laughs> uh marvin gay and, and and james nix who talked to who wrote the song together together uh james nix said that uh they they had like a really great melody and and everything for it but they didn't have lyrics and they started just talking and he said they talked about how the government would send guys to the moon but they wouldn't help folks in the ghetto um so that that was sort of like the start of the the lyric writing for it and he, he mentions the IRS in that too. He had a lot of trouble with mm-hmm. uh, with taxes and stuff like that. Taxes are hard. Yeah, especially if you come from like an uneducated background where you're not told how to handle your money and if your family doesn't have any real good influence on you with that kind of thing and then you get a whole bunch of fame. There, there are so many black artists that have been fucked by the IRS because of that. Well, and on top of that, the label isn't going to help them. They don't care. Yeah. And, and even, even like, you know, talking about uneducated, you have to come from like an insanely educated background to learn about taxes and finances and stuff like that, because no public school and most private schools don't even teach about how any of that stuff's going to work. So it really does come down to your family at that point. Um, which I mean, it, that's, that's a, a crapshoot all the time. Yeah. And even more today, it's intentionally complicated. So that doesn't help at all. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so if we're talking about like in 2020, it's still, you know, kind of nobody understands it as a, a an average citizen should imagine it in 1971. I, I mean, you can't just Google that. So, yeah, I did. I, I did find it funny that uh, this it, literally he calls out uh, paying taxes and what you know, all that kind of stuff in the song. And I was just like, man, I mean. Like I, I forgot the Beatles song that talks about taxes, or maybe that's Tax Man song. Yeah, that's it. Um, that that song feels hokey. Do, and, do you mean the song called Tax Man? Yeah, probably. <laughs> what's hey Hagen? What's that song about Grandma getting run over by a reindeer? Oh, you're talking about? <laughs> nope. Just, no, oh, I, I don't want to do it. I, I think he's referencing Jingle Bells. Oh, oh, see, I thought it was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. No, no, that's not it. It's not it? Are you sure? Are you sure? Maybe. But um, in a song like Tax Guy by the Beatles, um, <laughs> Tax I, Dude, that song feels hokey to me, whereas, you know, the name drop of Taxes and Inner City Blues, like, I was just like, yeah. I mean, if you were in the inner cities, not only are you dealing with, you know, all these social injustices and like, you know, 
not being funded, not having the help that other parts of the world are getting or parts of the country are getting, uh, yeah, of course you're going to be worried about taxes as well. Like on top of all this other shit, you got to think about just fucking taxes. And I was like, yeah, fucking the Rolling Stones don't get taxes, man. Yeah. <laughs> I oh. told you guys I was worried about this episode going into it. <laughs> um, this song was one of the singles <laughs> that was released, <laughs> and they they cut they cut uh, a little bit of like over a minute. The final minute was cut from the single version. Um, there you go. So like. <laughs> Well, yeah, but why did they cut the final minute of it? Because it goes back There's into... There's a reprise of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, was, I, I didn't know that. And I was like, even in my research, I didn't know that. And I was like, this is really fucking cool. That's what made me think that maybe this is a concept album. Interesting. Adam, what do you so think? Is that it's straight up, straight up? I'm not gonna lie. I'm sorry, Adam. We never cut Adam off, but I do have to say, when Adam spoke like maybe five minutes ago, I was like, "Holy shit, Adam's here!" <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all are talking about more about production stuff, and I don't have any experience with that. But sure, sure, yeah. It, I just I, you're 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 on a Zoom call with me, and I see your face, yeah, and I'm still yeah. surprised that you talked. <laughs> So, so Dave, is that, does it looping around mean it's a negative album or uh, optimistic? Oh, good question. Um, I think it just, for me, I think of it like it just sums up a conversation that uh, the the characters having with whoever the whoever they're talking to. Because it's like with all that being with all that being said, what's still like what's going on. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that, I, you know, I, I think what I would take away from it is you get to this end, and I wouldn't say that Inner City Blues is an optimist and optimistic ending. I would say that it, if you're going to go straight back into what's going on, that just kind of just shows that, like, it, and, you know, it, it, I think what that does is it shows that it, what these things Marvin Gaye is talking about he knows very well are cyclical that even if you're in a you know a decade of peace and prosperity you know that that's just borrowed time especially when we're talking about the african-american community you can talk about any community like this and you hear it time and time again with you know even uh jewish people talking about that they feel that they're always on borrowed time so there's there's that that kind of thing uh when it comes to peacetime so I, I, that's what I would take away from that is that even though you're at the end of this album, which most people think is like, all right, now we've solved everything. No, it's just like, well, we're going right back into it. You know, yeah. you know what's crazy is that it, seem, it, it seems like for majority of this album, they used the Detroit Symphony Orchestra for the string sections, which is pretty crazy to even then further think about the fact that a 13-year-old was involved. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah there yeah. were no jazz there were no jazz players in the detroit symphony orchestra there are jazz players in symphony orchestras now <laughs> that would be too boring for jazz players i'm just gonna wrap this album up i think it's a wonderful album would i put it at number one i don't know um 
but that's not what we're here to talk about. I think it's a wonderful album, and I'm really glad I've listened to it, and uh, I definitely would like to listen to a little bit more of Marvin Gaye because of it. So, And it is eerily uh, similar to what the world, or the U.S., and definitely the world are dealing with today. And, and so, also frustratingly similar. Yeah, it, 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 you know... When bad things are happening politically, this is an album that is now, I I have those albums that I listen to that kind of help me deal with that angst in a positive way. And now this will be in common rotation. If I don't want to listen to an angry punk album, this one will be like, a, oh, hey, I want to be more relaxed about this. Come at it level-headed. I think, uh, you know, four white guys on a podcast talking about this is really it's something that we can like, it's important for us as four white guys to go back and listen to this album in the context because it is, uh, somebody who has gone through struggles and racial injustices that we will never go through and we will never fully understand. And the album is let's have a conversation. You know, the album is what's going on. Here are the issues. And sometimes punk music, uh, is, is really, really great, but it's, it's, uh, I would say like most genres, largely white, so again, it's a lot of white guys just yelling about being upset about the state of the world, which is great sometimes, but it's really, really great to have that this other perspective and sometimes a perspective and I mean always a perspective that is more uh accurate to the action to like to, to the actions they, they 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 have experienced a lot more than we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I wouldn't be surprised if we had heard uh inner city blues be sampled on a Kendrick Lamar record. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we're done talking about the Adam, uh, the album, Adam, uh, Adam, you've got to be fucking, you've got to be fucking kidding me. No way. That was no that, way. That seemed like it was really well done. That, that bit. Yeah. That, that was perfect. We said that that was going to happen. It was like, maybe we should stop calling him album because we're going to fuck it up. And then here you go. So Adam, we, now that Hagen, Dave, and I are done talking about the album, did you have any thoughts on the album? <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was great. I agreed with most of the stuff y'all are saying. You know, <laughs> I I do think it's one of those albums that I'm glad we picked to listen to because I don't know if I would have listened to it otherwise, or at least not same at this point in time. But it feels like one of those albums that everybody should hear. Yeah, with some of the lyrics where you guys like, whoa. That's very relevant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I really, you know, thank you for Rolling Stone putting this number one because I haven't listened to their other the other albums on the top ten. I was just fascinated. I was like, I've never even heard of this album. And uh, so it, it it's very interesting. And no matter how... Once again, we're going to end every episode until we're done with it. Uh, go vote, and no matter how that goes uh, in a week or two, whatever. Um, just one week. This is a good. Just one yeah, week. This is a good album to have in your arsenal to just kind of listen to during yeah. this period. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I have I have one last question about the uh, the lawsuit stuff, which is how much money do you think? Ed Sheeran is facing in that lawsuit. Give you options: four point nine million, fifty million, uh, twenty-five million, and a hundred million. <laughs> Tree fifty. 
I'm going to go 4.5. Adam? All of the above? I don't know. It is $100 million. He is facing $100 million (laughs) in this lawsuit uh, about this song. Uh, The $4.9 million was the Blurred Lines amount. That's how much they had to pay from that lawsuit. Um, But, yeah, that is is the end of, of... of of that I, I we can talk about that another time more we I, we already have um but yeah that's uh, that's the end of my shitty ass game thanks everybody that's an insane <laughs> amount of money for like a shitty lawsuit yep absolutely insane amount of money it's very very stupid uh, I, I and they also get like uh songwriting credit for future future yeah. uh payments right uh, yeah jackson are you gonna put a, a clip in this episode so we get sued <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, sir. I'm the I, most they get out of us is a hundred dollars. I'm most certain that um, if if Ed Sheeran loses this lawsuit because it's still going on, because it, the it's way better for them to extend this sort of stuff um, than to just do it quickly. Um, I, I if if he loses, I don't think it'll be a hundred million and writing credits. It would probably be closer to like the five million mark or fifty million mark with writing credits. It wouldn't because they came at blurred lines of twenty five million dollars, and I don't think they got writing credits, but they got four point nine. They got five million dollars. Um, so I mean, I just want to know why they're doing this. Like, did they? Did they like? I guess Marvin Gaye didn't make a lot of money realistically. Maybe the, he got fucked over just constantly, and they're like, we deserve the money. Or maybe he did make a lot of money, and they're like let's like we spent it all yeah i wonder if that's part of it is some like frustration with maybe he didn't make all the money he should have gotten in the first place back then being attached to the motown label that's a likely scenario i would yeah i I would believe that for sure uh but at the same time like it's not (laughs) it's not like i don't know like suing suing robin thick and pharrell for blurred lines if you haven't listened to those two comparisons that one's pretty i i think that one's reaching a whole lot. Um, yeah. If you it, really, you should listen to "Let's Get It On" and thinking out loud, you should form your own opinion on it um, because that one is you. I, I could see it go either direction from based on the listener. Um, yeah, I mean, harmonically they have different bridges. Different bridges. Vocal melody is so different. My favorite Very thing about the, the, <laughs> the, the argument from the lawyers is that if you rearrange the notes, the melody's the same. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> We're all getting sued. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. The, these lawsuits are very unfortunately the kind of like a, 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 not the beginning of the end, but they're definitely setting an, a very bad precedent. But it is important to say, like Jackson said earlier, this is not Marvin Gaye. This is Marvin Gaye's estate. Marvin Gaye is amazing. Wrote amazing music. Um, and clearly his estate is just hungry for some kind for something. Don't know what it is though. So, um, anything? Anybody have anything else they want to add? Uh, I, I I would just like to say, listen to the album. It's it's worth yeah. thirty five minutes. Yeah. And I agree. Definitely, just if you don't like the opening track, you're not gonna like the album. So it, it's pretty simple. There. Yeah, I mean, if if somebody listened to us talk about this for like over twice as long as the album is, just shut up and listen to the album. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, people that listen to us that we really cherish. Shut <laughs> up. But if you're debating it because it's half an hour. Just listen to the album. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, I'm just joking. Just joking, album. <laughs> go vote. Yeah, go thanks. Vote. Hey, everybody, go vote. Thank you for listening uh, to another uh, really just awesome episode of Don't Feed the Artist. We did great. We know it, and we're going to pat ourselves on the back for it later. 
Um, thank you guys for being excellent listeners. Uh, go follow us on all of the social medias if you can. Uh, if you don't have social media, then really good for you. More power to you. Uh, if you, you're listening to us, so hit subscribe, hit follow. Um, you know, maybe rate us, I guess, on the iTunes store. That's still a thing, right? Is that still a thing they yeah. do on Apple Podcasts yeah, is. is rating? Uh, and if you're on, uh, if you're listening to podcasts in an inferior app like Spotify, look elsewhere. But you know, also follow us on there because it's good. So, yeah, hit the hit that follow button for Spotify. Uh, hit the hit the subscribe button for most other apps and rate us in the Apple Podcast Store because that does help. Um, follow us on social media and thank you guys for listening. And remember to fuck off. Give me a towel. And if you're Marvin Gaye, rest in peace. Yes, rest in peace. Guys, that was a callback to the beginning of the episode when you guys talked about him being dead. About the fact that his dad shot him twice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. Yeah. Just like the uh, we made a a concept episode. Are we done?